Let's pray. Father, again, I thank you for the gift of your word and your spirit. You have not left us without a testimony to your goodness, your grace, your kindness, your love, uh, your help in times of trouble. What a tremendous gift this is, a gift that cannot fade away or be destroyed, an indestructible gift, and we thank you that you've given it to us. We pray that you would open our minds and our hearts and help us to understand what you have for us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In J.R.R. Tolkien's trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, Middle Earth is in big trouble. An evil is building in Mordor. And it's affecting all of Middle Earth. And it turns out that the cause of this evil is a ring, a ring of power, that if the evil in Mordor can get in in control of it, then the world is completely in his hands. Nothing can stop him. And as it appears, he's on the way to gaining this ring and His evil will reign. Um, All manner of men and uh, elves and uh, uh, different species and creatures have gathered together to fight against this evil, but it's, it's to no avail. And finally, in deciding at a high council what they should do, uh, it the salvation of Middle-earth falls into the hands of an insignificant race and a few representatives from that race, uh, the hobbits, and in particular, Frodo Baggins. The salvation of Middle-earth falls into the hands of this little hobbit, Frodo Baggins. And although men and elves and others are going to help him on his journey to try to destroy this ring of power, um, eventually they all fall away and Frodo and his friend are left alone to accomplish this mission. I share this with you because in a way it relates to our story today in that Jesus was a very unlikely savior of the world. He wasn't of uh, magnificent appearance. He didn't ride a white stallion. He wasn't followed by legions, an army. He didn't wear a crown. He was a, an unlikely hero, an unlikely savior of the world. Here we find him accomplishing his mission. His jaw is set towards Jerusalem. And this is one of the major steps on the way to accomplishing his mission. By raising Lazarus from the dead, all the Jewish leaders are going to be so upset. And it's going to lead to the crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ. But what they don't know is that by His death, 
He accomplishes His mission. And they are helping Him to be the Savior of the world by crucifying Him on a cross. So we pick up the story where we left off last week with Jesus standing outside of this little town less than two miles away from Jerusalem, the reigning capital of Judaism. And here he is, off to the side, off stage, so to speak, accomplishing the salvation of the world. Uh, Martha has gone out to see him, um, made an incredible profession of faith, uh, some incredible statements of belief in Him as the Christ, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. And uh, she turns and runs back into the town and picks up her sister, Mary. Mary, uh, the Lord has come and is calling you. And uh, Mary immediately jumps up and runs out. And when she comes to Jesus, she falls at His feet, crying. But she says the same thing that her sister Martha had said earlier. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And so, what we see in Martha and Mary is so similar to you and I. There's some good things that we can look at them and praise them for, and there are some things that are weak. And instead of comparing Martha to Mary, as often as done, I think we ought to compare Martha and Mary to ourselves. And what we see in Martha and Mary in both of them are some strengths and some weaknesses. Martha, earlier in this chapter, is quite a woman. She, she says in verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. There's some incredible faith. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She knows these things in her mind and she believes them in her heart. Martha's a woman of faith. She may be a different personality type than Mary, but we shouldn't exalt one over the other. What we see here in our present excuse me, our present text is Mary falling to the feet of Jesus. Where do we find Mary? At the feet of Jesus. In Luke, we find her sitting at the feet of Jesus. And then later in the next chapter, John 12, we see Mary at Jesus' feet pouring this very expensive ointment on his feet, anointing him in preparation for his burial. And here, she's falling at his feet. Mary's a woman of emotion, unlike her sister. She's, Mary's more emotional. She was sitting in the house during the seven days of mourning when Martha came to get her. She was on day four of the Shiva, the seven days of mourning. For her brother. But they each demonstrate strengths and weaknesses. And here we see Mary demonstrating a similar weakness as Martha. Lord, Lord, 
If you had been here, my brother would not have died. A little bit of a rebuke to Jesus. Um, Why didn't you come? We sent word ahead of time. The one that you love is sick. And you didn't come. And now finally you show up. And our brother's been in the tomb for four days. A little bit of a rebuke here. A little lack of faith and unbelief. But look at the grace of Jesus. Whether it's dealing with Martha or Mary, Jesus demonstrates tremendous grace. And Jesus sees her weeping and the Jews that are with her. He's deeply moved and greatly troubled. Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus weeps. This short few verses here give us the most intense feeling of Jesus in the Gospels. He's deeply moved, greatly troubled, and he weeps. He's identifying with those who are mourning. He's not mourning the death of Lazarus because Jesus knows that in just a few minutes, he's going to call Lazarus back from the dead. He's not mourning Lazarus. As a matter of fact, there's probably a couple of different emotions going on and for a couple of different reasons. I want to uh, point out to you in verse 20, in verse 33 that the words deeply moved are a little bit off the uh, definition of that particular word. It really has more of a meaning of anger and agitation. Jesus is upset. He's not upset um, with Mary and Martha. He's not upset that they're grieving. uh, He's showing by his own tears that he uh, participates in grieving. He identifies with them in their grieving. But what he's upset about is their lack of faith. Not just Mary and Martha, but also the Jews that are with them. They're mourning as the world. They have a sorrow that is unto death. It's not the kind of sorrow that we as Christians are to portray. With a, Even though we're sad, that we have a deep, rock-solid belief underneath that Jesus is in control and that one day we're going to be with Him. We have a sure hope. So we see a little bit of anger and a a little bit of crying. And part of it is towards unbelief. And part of it is anger towards sin, Satan, and death for the havoc that they have wreaked on our world. And Jesus is looking at this beautiful world that he's created and these beautiful people that he's created and their lives are a wreck because of sin, Satan, and death. And that's the same world that you and I live in today. Sin, Satan, and death wreak havoc on our lives. We lack joy. We lack meaning and purpose. And the Jews don't quite get it either. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? 
And they're a little bit right and a little bit wrong. Yes, Jesus loved Lazarus. We know that back in verse 5 where it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. But He wasn't upset about Lazarus. Yes, He loved Lazarus. But there was something much bigger going on here. And then some of them said, Could not He who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? Similar to what Mary and Martha both said. Lord, if You'd been here, my brother would not have died. And that's true too, but it shows a lack of faith. Jesus didn't even have to be present to heal someone. He'd done it many times before. Healed from a distance. He's all-powerful. And then we have the same word again in verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, probably the older sister because she's mentioned first in almost every occurrence in the Scripture except at the beginning of this chapter where John is explaining who we're talking about. And everybody knew that Mary had anointed the feet of Jesus. So he introduces the family through Mary. Otherwise, Martha is always introduced first. Probably the older sister, the more responsible one. And she points out to Jesus (laughs) as if he wouldn't know. It's been four days and there's an odor. The Jews didn't embalm like the Egyptians did. They uh, anointed with spices to ward off the stench as long as possible. But the Jews... uh, often buried in caves, either uh, vertically or horizontally, and would use them again in a year after the entire body had decayed. The Jews uh, typically buried someone the day they died and then mourned for them for a week sitting together in the house. And then for a year after that, And at the end of a year, uh, then they would use that same cave again for someone else. Jesus said to her, verse 40, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? This is just a little bit off what we see Jesus saying to Martha back here uh, from 23 to 26. He does not mention to Martha in those verses the glory of God. That goes all the way back to verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, He said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And we imagine that that message was given to the messenger that had come to Jesus and said, The one you love is sick. And so they brought that message back to Mary and Martha that this illness is not unto death, but unto the glory of God. And so it's kind of a combination of that verse and then 23 through 26. Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? And a little bit of a rebuke, a little bit more training. 
Jesus trying to deepen their faith. Yes, they have a measure of faith. Yes, you and I have a measure of faith. But God's calling us to a deeper level of faith. Yes, he lies in that tomb. It's been four days. It seems impossible that I could raise him from the dead. But it's not inconsistent with what God's done. Jesus had raised at least two other people from the dead previous to this. We know that Jairus' son and the widow's son of Nain were both raised by Jesus. Uh, Some of the prophets raised people from the dead. But it shouldn't have been a surprise what Jesus could do. Think back to Ezekiel, to that famous chapter of the valley of the dry bones. Do you remember that? There have even been songs written about the valley of the dry bones. And sometimes in the song, there'll be like these bones tapping together in the song. So you can visualize this valley floor covered with dry bones. And God has Ezekiel standing before that valley of dry bones. And he says, Ezekiel, can these bones come to life? (laughs) You know, I don't. You know. And all of a sudden, there's this incredible rumbling sound, clanging sound of the bones hitting against each other and coming together and God puts flesh on the bones. And they stand up and God covers them with skin. And there is a mighty army standing before Ezekiel. This is not inconsistent with who God the Creator of the universe is. If we go all the way back to Genesis... God creates man out of the dust of the earth. And if you go back before that, God's created the whole universe out of nothing. So why should it be hard for Mary and Martha and the Jews to believe that Jesus could raise the dead? God's created everything out of nothing. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father... Another intimate glimpse into the relationship between Jesus and his father. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Jesus has already prayed that Lazarus would come back to life from the dead. And he's not asking the father. He's thanking the father for making that happen. That too should reflect you and I. We should come to God thanking Him for what He's going to do instead of asking Him all the time. I thank You, Father, that You're going to accomplish Your will in my life regardless of what I understand that to be. Thank You for having my best as Your primary concern, although I may not understand what's best for me. Now, those of us who are parents know what that's all about with our kids because we know what's better for our kids than they do most of the time. And uh, our kids don't agree. And uh, we tell them that they're not going to have this particular snack right before dinner. Uh, We tell them that they can't play out in the middle of the interstate There are a number of things that we tell them what to do, and they don't understand, and they don't agree. 
Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. If you have your Bible open to John, turn to John 20. If there's one verse that you should know from the Gospel of John, it is not John 3.16. I'd like you to look at John 20, verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. This is John's purpose statement for writing the gospel. It's what God has told him to do. This is why he's writing it down. Jesus did many other signs. How many signs does John describe in his gospel? Seven. A whopping seven. That's it. We know that Jesus performed hundreds, if not thousands, of miracles. But John doesn't call them miracles. John's different. John calls them signs. What is a sign? A sign points to something beyond itself. If you look at a magic trick, we don't have miracles as such. Our closest thing might be a magic trick. The focus is on the trick. And they want you to pay attention to what they're pointing out so that you miss what's actually going on off to the side. The focus is on the magic. That's not the purpose of a sign. Jesus isn't doing miracles to be a miracle worker. He's doing it to point beyond the miracle. The miracles are supposed to grab our attention and point to something else. And the reason for the signs is that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's what John says is important. The people, many of them, did not get it. They followed him because he had fed them, the 5,000, from five loaves and two fishes. Jesus said, you didn't follow me because of my teaching. You followed me because you ate and were satisfied. He did these signs to point beyond the miracle to himself. Verse 42, I knew, Father, that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! He could have whispered. He could have said nothing. It's not the strength of his voice. He did that for the people standing around as well. So they knew it was him who had brought forth, who had called Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was dead four days. And the voice of Jesus Christ woke him up. 
the voice of Jesus raised the dead. Folks, any of you who are Christians who've come to know Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's what has happened in your life. You weren't buried in a cave. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Uh, You may not think of yourself in terms of already rotting, decaying, and stinking, but you were. And if you don't know Christ personally, you are. You stink. Your sin has made a mess of your life. You're dead, decaying. You're corrupted in your flesh and in your spirit. And it takes the call of Jesus to wake you from the dead. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, listen to this line, unbind him and let him go. It's more than just those cloths that are wrapped around Lazarus. It's a word to all sinners. Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. You and I, who have come to Christ, have been unbound. We are not forever chained in the deepest dungeon with no light and rats scampering around and gross food served and a a little pot for us to go to the bathroom in. That's not our situation. Christ has called us from the dead. We've been unbound. We have a taste now on this earth of freedom, just a taste of what it's going to be like in heaven. And we're going to be unbound. We're going to be free. What's the end of Braveheart all about? Mel Gibson yelling out, Freedom! You and I are going to yell out, Freedom! We're going to experience freedom from this mortal, corrupted body. The older we get, the more we experience it. This body that that chains us and drags us down. We're going to be indestructible, raised from the dead. Unbind him and let him go. Jesus was an unlikely Savior. To the world, he appeared as a nothing and a nobody. There's nothing that this man can do to threaten our kingdom until suddenly he was brought before Pilate, until he raised Lazarus from the dead. Who is this person? So what we have here is the last of the seven signs that John records. Only seven. And it's the most powerful one. Because of this sign, Jesus will be crucified. From this point in the Gospel on, His ministry is done. And now it's all about His passion. It's about the Jews gathering together. And we're going to see this next week, the beginning of the end, uh, which is the end of the beginning. And uh, 
the Chronicles of Narnia. There's a chapter in uh, one of the books that says the, the beginning of the end. And it talks about also the end of the beginning. Our lives on this earth are the beginning. And the end of the beginning is our death. But what's going to happen with you at the end of the beginning? Will it be the beginning of an endless future with Christ, His children, and the angels? Or will it be a a beginning of misery for you? Let's pray together. Father, I am so excited about Your Word, the, the power of Your Word, but the power of Your Son revealed in Your Word. We thank You for Jesus, His power over sin, Satan, and death. And though Lazarus died a second time, Your Son rose from the dead never to die again. And we have the promise from Him that even though we die, we'll live. And so, Lord, we, we pray that in this end of the beginning, where we live right now in this world, you would help us to live a life pleasing to you in your power, accomplishing your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.